Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Real Talks. Uh, I'm actually joined by a special guest today. Uh, he currently hails from Moore Park, California. He's been a leading film critic who's covered Hollywood for the better part of 15 years, getting a start writing in for his alma mater, entitled The Guardian, at Wright State University, earning a degree in film theory and criticism. After graduating, he began his own blog and started to write reviews for that. After many years of hard work, his success paid off, becoming the film critic for the Huffington Post Online. While there, his career flourished again, and eventually, taking the next step, April of 2013, he joined Forbes, where he is now as a contributing writer, and soon thereafter made the leap to the full-time staff. For nearly the last 10 years, he's been covering not only the films themselves, but delves into the box office each and every week. He and David Chen host a weekly Twitter space where they talk about everything movies. I'm honored to have Mr. Scott Mendelson here on Real Talks. Thank you for being here, Scott. And where can they find you and your work? Uh, still Forbes.com. Google some variation of Forbes and the ticket booth and Scott Mendelson. And yeah, as far as my quote-unquote path to whatever, I started writing my own blog in 2008 just as something to do after my first kid was born. Obviously, it wasn't a job. Even the HuffPost thing, that was something they came to me probably about six months after I started doing my own thing and just it was sort of a syndication type thing. It was never paid. It was something where I'd write for this post and then copy and paste over here. And it just was a slightly bigger outlet and it got me into, in the door in terms of making studio contacts and then getting into screenings. Um, just because the HuffPost name, for better or worse, you know, people know that. Um, I was recruited by Forbes in April 2013, initially as a contributor. Um, and that's basically been my job since April 2013, one way or another. Um, and yeah, still So, so many questions, and we'll, you know, we can save those for another time. But I thought what we do today is jump into, uh, do a little wrap-up show of... Um, uh, Comic-Con, which was one of the biggest events and which is one of the biggest events of the year, especially this year, considering this is the first year we've had a full-fledged Comic-Con since the pandemic. Was there anything you were really looking forward to or hoping that would happen? Well, there was a, you know, there were rumors that Henry Cavill was going to show up and announce Man of Steel 2. I never thought that was the case. I was kind of hoping he would show up and then announce that he's not doing Man of Steel 2 just to troll with all the that specific fandom. Or, you know, Toby Emmerich would walk up on stage during the Warner Brothers and was like, Elvis outgrows Lightyear. Bye-bye. <laughs> and then walk off stage accordingly. Uh, sadly, neither of those things happened. Other than that, I mean, I was expecting a little bit more from the Warner Brothers DC panel, but in terms of expectations versus reality, they had all the stars of their next two big movies they showed new footage, they showed new trailers in both of those films, and they did a normal panel where they interacted with the moderators and the fans, and that's what Comic-Con is supposed to be. You know, the idea that they, you know, whether wins or loses Comic-Con or whatever, I mean, that's neither here nor there. I, you know, if you want my opinion, I would argue Warner Brothers, A, you know, they've been burned by long lead advertising before, in terms of, you know, playing to the geeks and the already converted, while well, I think they finally understand, as does the industry, that most people don't really start paying attention to stuff till about five or six weeks out from release. 
Um, so, you know, assuming it's good, and assuming it is, you know, four months is enough time to sell Black Panther Wakanda forever. So you didn't need to put out a teaser attached to Shang-Chi and then another teaser attached to Spider-Man and, you know, basically a long, year-long ad campaign. Now, if Chris Nolan wants to put an announcement teaser for, for his latest movie and exactly a year out, thought of it, that's fine. But, you know, I, I, the Open Hammer trailer was fine. It was an announcement teaser. It plays better, you know, as one of, you know, six trailers before a movie than it does as its own thing dropping online to the thrill of everyone. Um, and that's, you know, I, 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 that goes into a broader conversation of how we started to treat trailer, not started, it's been a decade, you know, where we treat trailer drops as, as news in and of itself. So you have a trailer like, you know, the teaser for The Lion King teasers for all that that were basically bare bones announcers trailers that you know you see that stuff in a theater with you know 10 minute 20 minute trailer reel oh that's neat it's the mailer making a lab but if you're somebody that's like breathlessly waiting for it to pop up during the football game and you're refreshing twitter ten thousand times in an hour it might be a little bit what you get might be a little disappointing um but again i think they're taking all this into consideration as far as warner brothers dc slate yeah, I'm sure there was some concern about the the Ezra Miller situation and, relatively speaking, because I don't want to equate them morally or legally, the Amber Heard situation. Um, and the other thing is, I think even more similar than that, is that, you know, Black Panther Wakanda Forever opens in November. That's a pretty good place to drop your first Avatar trailer. And then Shazam and Avatar both come out in late December. That those are both good places to drop a flash trailer. And if you're playing to the actual people that you need to go to the theater to buy tickets to make this film financially successful, you know, you don't need Comic-Con. And you haven't, you know, Comic-Con has been almost a, and this is a simplistic concept, but almost a snake eating its tail for the last several years, because at the end of the day, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Lord of the Rings or any of these very geek-centric properties that became huge mainstream blockbuster franchises, they became blockbuster franchises by convincing people that, you know, didn't know who Thor was or maybe hadn't read the Lord of the Rings books or, you know, what have you to show up. And that audience isn't going to be at Comic-Con. You know, you're preaching the converted. In fact, most, what I would argue, most of the long lead marketing materials that we've seen over the last decade or so are about the converter. And that's fine if you keep your expectations and or financial obligations in check, but you don't want to blow your wad. You know, if you, know, if you want an election season, you know, yes, you have to win the primary, but at the end of the day, you know, you want to keep enough money for the general election. Um, that may be a bad analogy, but whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as to why the, the Warner Brothers panel was maybe smaller scale, lower profile than some of us thought, there are other outset, you know, extenuating circumstances that be their fault. You know, and I, that's, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I think, you know, looking objectively in terms of pitching to general audiences, you know, you, you'll use Black Panther Wakanda forever to launch some of this stuff, and then you use Avatar and Shazam to launch something else. And that's the ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this this Comic-Con was basically, 
at what I said to you right before we began. It was it was like a Marvel con. Yes. I mean, and I mean, DC did have some stuff there, but when Kevin Feige came up on stage, you know, it, they had the next ten years planned, and so and, and what you were just talking about, Wakanda Forever, which does drop in in uh, November, November is going to be the final film of Phase Four. I, I like how Feige, Feige, and this isn't a criticism of a compliment, just came out and said, yeah, phase four is over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think he Put knew. Put that behind you. Yeah, I yeah. Well, and then it's sort of the difference between general audience interest, awareness, opinions versus the perpetually online. Yeah. And you know this because, you know, we all live in a bubble unless we are lucky enough to get out in the world. But, you know, the regular, you know, the general moviegoers, they thought Doctor Strange was fine. They thought Spider-Man Far From Home was a lot of fun. That's why they saw it a bunch. They thought Shang-Chi was terrific. They weren't crazy about Black Widow. They weren't big on Eternals. They probably could take or leave Thor. They probably didn't watch most of the Disney Plus shows. Yeah. But it doesn't mean, oh no, Marvel is doomed. What are we going to do? And I think the idea that, oh no, Marvel needs to tell us what their grand plans are right now. Again, I think that's a social media driven problem social media driven narrative you know he dropped a whole bunch of stuff because he wanted to and that's how you win comic con yeah Marvel. and i think to, to their credit they generally deliver on what they announce yeah i mean um with a few exceptions here and there but i mean not to pick on dc because i that's a whole complicated conversation but you know we're still waiting for a green lantern movie you know we're, we're obviously not getting a cyborg movie we're obviously not getting a second justice League movie Having said that, we weren't supposed to get a, uh, you know, Birds of Prey and Joker and, and, and Wonder Woman 2. So we've gotten some stuff that wasn't announced. We haven't gotten some stuff that wasn't announced. It probably evens out in the broad scheme of things. But as far as Marvel's thing, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of controlling the narrative, it was in their interest to announce that Phase 4 is over. You know, the, the stuff that we're making now is going to be released on time. When we say it's going to be released the first time, and again, that's COVID. It's not their fault necessarily, you know. Uh, and so I, I do think there is a certain, okay, this is you know we're kind of back on track after a few years of a COVID-related you know uh, uh, changes, and b just the fact that you know if you ever watched a serialized TV show, fantasy or otherwise, the fourth season can be kind of bumpy because you've got that f- perfect three-season arc that could be a series finale, you know, whatever. And then season four is like, yeah, okay, what are we doing now? You know, Gilmore Girls, Smallville, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Lost to a certain extent. Um, you know, I imagine nobody's favorite season of Buffy is season four. And I, I, I think, you know, and I, you know, I was saying that four years ago, and everybody was gearing up for the end. It's like, you know, this, this season four, phase four of Marvel could be Buffy. And again, I didn't realize there was a global pandemic on my horizon. I mean, so it's one of those situations where I was right unintentionally. Or like, you know, I wrote a piece in 2018. It's like, they should take a year off after Avengers Endgame. You know, and at the time, I was just thinking, you know, make it feel more like the fun finale and give it more impact in that sense. And they had just fired James Gunn, you know, initially. So it's like, you're going to need a year to figure out what you're going to do now. Because as you remember... Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was supposed to be the season premiere of Phase 4. From what I understand, and I don't know this to be true or false, there was some something about Guardians 3, that trailer getting leaked online. Did you hear about this? 
Oh, is that oh, completely... Oh, I'm sure some footage got leaked online. It always happens. I mean, I've been... Yeah. You know, my, my second year of blogging was 2009. And yeah, I was able to see a bootleg of the Iron Man 2 teaser a day after it popped, even though I did not go to Comic-Con. I didn't write about it, but whatever. I mean, there's never been a case of where a trailer drops online early and it does negative, you know, it, it does genuine harm to the film that's being advertised. Because again, that's not the audience that you need to be a general audience's global hit. You need the people that didn't even know there was not, you know, for sure that there was an Iron Man 2 coming until they walk into Avatar on opening weekend and oh shit, it's an Iron Man trailer. Neat. Um, you know, there are people that, you know, this is not directly online. You know, they showed up to, you know, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness on opening weekend and they were surprised by the Avatar trailer. Both that it was attached to that film and that it was done, basically. That it was far enough along I'll get to see this thing in six months. And they were kind of happy in a way that I wish I, I, I envied them to a certain extent. Because obviously we live in a very different world. Um, you know, we live in a world, you know, when you're in the media, when you're covering this stuff, especially for geek-centric pictures, the media slash marketing slash promotion cycle for these things are so pervasive that the whole part of it where they actually go in front of the cameras and shoot the movie almost feels like a box just needing to be checked. You know, if that makes sense. Um, and I'll stop now because I've been rambling. No, 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 no. I, and uh, this is why we we get your insight and get people like yourself on the show because you've been in the game for 15, 20 years and you know what you're talking about. Somebody like me who's trying to get in the game, their foot in the door. Nonetheless, though, but they did. So let's get back to Marvel for a minute. They dropped, as you said, a ton of stuff, the Wakanda Forever uh, trailer. And, and so we have another Captain America on the horizon, Sam Wilson uh, from the Falcon Winter Soldier. We have two more. So we now finally know who the uh, villain is for, the, for this phase. And that's the, the Avengers, the Kang Dynasty. Um, do you think it's going to be detrimental to them? And I say when I say them, I mean Marvel. Do you think it's going to be detrimental to them to have two Avengers movies coming out in six months? I mean, because the reason I say this is if you look at the first one, it was 2012. If you look at Age of Ultron, it was 2014 or 15. You're seeing a couple of, you're seeing a movie every couple of years, which makes it okay. And now you're getting two in six months. I agree with you. Even Endgame and Infinity War, which needed a year. Do you think it's going to be compacted too much? Maybe. I mean, it didn't work for the Matrix sequels, but it did work for the Twilight Zone. And, you know, by that I mean New Moon opened November of 2009, made $700 million worldwide, and then the dark or the uh, uh, Twilight Saga Eclipse opened in June of 2010, and A became the franchise's only $300 million domestic grocer and made another about $700 million. So in that case, I mean, it didn't get a bump, but it was in the middle of the series. Uh, but obviously the Matrix, you know, yeah, you know, if by some fluke everybody hates Avengers, the, the King Dynasty, that's a problem. But I, I mean, they just announced that, that Destin Daniel Cretton is directed to get in. That makes perfect sense because Shang-Chi was sort of, in my opinion, the one unmitigated success of the MCU Phase 4. 
all due respect to Spider-Man, but that's a Spider-Man movie from Sony that was banking on the popularity of Sony's Spider-Man pictures. I'm not saying it's not a thing good, but in terms of Disney's narrative and Disney's strength with Marvel, you know, it only counts so much. Um, in the same way that, like, yay, Warner Brothers can sell a Batman movie. Great. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm very happy to see that he's directing that, both because I would argue Shang-Chi is one of their better solo pictures, period. Certainly, I'd say offhand, it's my favorite part one solo Marvel movie behind the first Captain America, which I am and remain very fond of. That was the first Marvel movie I loved. Like it, it was the first reason, it was, it actually got me excited for the Avengers, almost single-handedly. Because I'll be honest, I didn't like Iron Man. I didn't like Iron, Incredible Hulk anymore than anyone else did. And I wasn't crazy at Iron Man 2, and I was now on Thor. But again, this was in, you know, this was back when they were just one franchise among many. It was like, okay, I didn't like Iron Man. I love Speed Racer. It stinks that that one bombed, but whatever. So the number of views, and I'm look, YouTube has their algorithm and, and everything else, and I get that. So this one trailer that was dropped last weekend got 172 million views in 24 hours. Yes. And so in comparison, I mean, so I guess and. I guess my question is this. Black Panther opened to $202 million. It's only one of eight movies ever to make that amount. I mean, Jurassic Park, you know, Jurassic World, The Force, The Force Awakens. I could go on and on and on. The Avengers, The Last Jedi. Okay. So my question is, do you think this can make more than 202 in its opening weekend? Oh, now that I've seen the trailer, I'm more optimistic than I was. Not that's awesome. You know, it's, 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 as a general rule, when, sequ- when part ones go to infinity and beyond, there's only so much room for a sequel to break out. Um, I, yes, it could. It absolutely could. Just because most people that saw Black Panther liked it. It was leggy as hell, which means you have people that saw it on opening weekend, saw it on weekend 12, saw it on DVD, saw it on Disney Plus. It was one of, I, Please don't quote me as an authority on this, but I think it was one of the most popular movies on Netflix in 2018. You know, back when it was on, you know, when Netflix had the Disney films. Um, and it's not like its reputation has decreased in the last four years. Um, there's been no backlash. Under, you know, not saying there should be, but you know these things go. Um, and not to be morbid or insensitive, but I do think the Chadwick Boseman factor creates a certain curiosity that otherwise wouldn't exist. Now, for the record, I think it would have been a giant smash hit anyway, just as The Last Jedi would have been a big hit whether Carrie Fisher had survived or not past the age of 60, with due respect. This is not a Night Furious 7 situation where the shocking death of a major cast member makes takes the film from big deal to global news story. Um, this was always be a seismic event regardless. Um, but I do think the morbid or non-morbid curiosity about how they're going to handle that particular plot thread might spur opening weekend interest beyond, hey, it's another Black Panther movie. 
And again, that's just, you know, it's, it's, it gives from an A plus opening to an A plus plus opening. Um, I don't want to throw out numbers right now because, I mean, when you're dealing at this level, the sky's the limit. You know, I, I still get people, you know, I still get people online arguing that Hollywood was underestimating Black Panther because we only thought it might do 175 over the opening weekend instead of 202. It's like, that's not how this works. Yeah, I mean, and it's so difficult too because, for example, nobody thought Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness was going to make 187. Nobody. Uh, and that was an okay was, movie. Yes and no. I think there were people that wrongfully assumed it was going to do, you know, two, well, two I, I, Yeah. But then again, on the flip side, I don't think people really thought Spider-Man No Way Home was going to crack 200. So I, it's, it's a crapshoot one way or the other. You know, we know it's going to make 100. I mean, if you ballpark it, it's probably going to make about 150. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. going to make a gajillion dollars. So I, I think it's probably going to make right around the average opening, give or take. Okay, give or take the last few years. And I mean, you have Spider-Man on the high end at like 208 or 209. The low end is probably like 130. So if you ballpark it right in the middle, I mean, Doctor Strange made 187. Thor made, I want to say, like 140-something. So, I mean... Uh, 144. Okay, Here's the thing, and there are tons and tons of people that couldn't give two hoops about the MCU before 2018 and after 2018 that will be there with bells on for Black Panther Wakanda forever. That's one reason why it's such an important franchise, you know, representation notwithstanding and all that, you know, that discourse. Um, it is a franchise that has a fandom outside the MCU and maybe bigger than the MCU. I mean, it made more money than any solo, than any MCU movie other than in North America than The Last Avengers. It made more than Avengers, Avengers 2, Avengers 3, Captain America 3, you know, you throw everything that all this will be huge because Marvel's so popular. Black Panther passed it. So yeah, especially having seen the trailer that looks very good, that it certainly doesn't look like this was a film that they struggled to get to the finish line just because they had to. Yeah. And again, a trailer is a trailer. Yeah. I love the last The Force Awakens trailer. I like The Force Awakens. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of trailers that were... Um, but yeah, I mean, I think right now the sky's the limit. Yeah. So Kevin Feige came out and he called... So we ended up calling the phases, the multiverse phase saga. But basically, so phase five, I have no desire to see the new Ant-Man movie, even though that kicks it off. Um, so they're, they're coming back and they've got, as I said, Captain America, New World Order. They've got the Thunderbolts. And Fantastic Four is supposed to finally come out in, in November 2024 any idea or okay let me ask you this question if you could pick one director today to direct fantastic four who is it jennifer u nelson because i wanted to make lots of money and make big movies i think kung fu panda 2 is one of the best american animated films of the last 20 years i think it's one of the best hollywood martial arts movies of the last 20 years i think it's incredibly underrated uh and you know before wonder woman it was the biggest grossing movie from a solo female director um, and frankly, anim- you know, bias against animation and frankly bias the fact that she's an Asian, Asian woman is why she did not get the kind of opportunities that would have gone from making a action adventure comedy that made $660 million worldwide on a 160 budget. Um, other than that, you know, when, when people do, you know, fan casting for directors, I, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, 
for me, my thing is, okay, who do I want to see make money? Because <laughs> even if the movie stinks, I mean, it's not like Chloe, uh, Chloe Zhao is not going to be able to make her personal intimate drama because we didn't like Eternals. But you know what? She got money from that, so good for her. So, you know, Jennifer Hugh Nielsen, um, um, uh, Maria Heller, who I think is spectacular. She's done three films, Diary of a Teenage Girl, Can You Ever Forgive Me, and uh, Another Day in the, uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, wait, what you name? Oh, yeah, no. Um, which was the documentary? No, yeah. Which was the documentary? You're, you're thinking of the one with Tom Hanks. No, I understand uh, what you... But yes. Yeah. Which I... But, um... Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, you know, when people were talking about, ooh, you know, is Man of Steel 2 going to happen? It's like, I don't care. But if it does, I think she would be a wonderful person to make a Superman movie. Because I think the Mr. Rogers movie is at its core about the fact that being kind is incredibly hard work. And I think that's an int- that that to me would be an angle to play with the Superman movie. Um, but again, I mean, in the broad scheme of things, I think Superman is one of those characters like Robin Hood, like King Arthur, like Tarzan, where there are more, everyone's heard of them, that doesn't mean they actually want a movie about them. Um, we haven't had a hit Superman, an, un- an unmitigated successful Superman movie since in 40 years, in Superman 2, which was to a certain extent successful because people liked Superman 1, which was successful to a certain extent because it was the first, you know, basically it was the first of its kind. And it was a very good movie from a, an unusually talented and accomplished and thoughtful commercial filmmaker, you know, uh, Richard Donner. So, you know, I, I, I think to a certain extent, a lot of times what we mistake for, oh, people like this movie, they must want to see a franchise or whatever. No, they just liked the movie because it was good. And maybe they'll see another one because they like this, you know, this specific cinematic incarnation of this franchise, but that doesn't mean they want to see other versions of it again and again and again. Um, you know, one big problem that Hollywood has always had, and certainly more so in the last 10 years or so, when, you know, as IP has become more dominant, is like they're mistaking the abstract for the specific. You know, people liked Inception because they liked Inception, the very specific variables that that film brought to the table. That doesn't mean they want a remake of Total Recall. Or people love Jordan Peele's Get Out because of the specific elements of that film. It doesn't mean they want a bunch of grim, dark horror movies about slavery. Um, in fact, that's an almost ghoulishly funny misreading of that picture. A film that, while it earns its R rating, you know, doesn't, wa- you know, pardon me for using cliche, does not wallow in black paint. And that's a big reason why it worked as a crowd pleasing, you know, a horror comedy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's people like Harry Potter, that doesn't mean they want to see The Darkest Rising. You know, they, they, they liked Aladdin, that doesn't mean they want to see Dumbo. They like Batman in 1989. That doesn't mean they want to see The Shadow. Um, and that has been, you know, a lifelong lesson in terms of Hollywood continuously learning the wrong thing from a, a lightning in a bottle hit. You know, people love the Avengers. That doesn't mean they wanted 10 years of cinematic universes and, and you know, superheroes. You know, I, I can't even think off the top of my head the last six theatrically successful comic book superhero movie that wasn't DC or Marvel. I mean, I'm sure if you go back, you know, the Chronicle Baby that was made for like ten bucks. I, I'm I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I no, it's it's been a minute. Probably the Superman movie, which you were just <laughs> referring to, the yeah. Donner one. And you know, I can't. Just, I mean, everything else in the last 30, 40 years has been, you know, you've had heads. No, I just mean superhero in general. Yeah, I just mean like you know, the last not 
our Marvel slash not DC comic book adaptation that was a smash hit that spawned a franchise was The Kingsman. Yeah. Which is not a superhero movie at all. <laughs> it's basically what if Roger Moore, James Bond films were really hard R-rated films. And that's a, that's a fun bitch. Um, but, anyway. but no, so speaking of animation, so Spider-Man freshman year was announced that it's going to be released in 2024. Um, so this is an animated series that follows Peter Parker's journey to become Spider-Man. And of course, they've got Charlie Cox, Cox who's coming back to voice Matt Murdock and Daredevil. And I guess he's going to be playing a mentor tour, tour of some sort. And you're going to have all these villains in there. And they've, they're so confident about this, Scott, that they've already ordered the sophomore year. And it's already in development. Do you think... Well... I mean, do you think people are starting to It's a to get, Spider-Man cartoon. People are watching. Yeah. watch it. I just think it's funny that you have people online that are, like, pretending to be confused about the continuity. It's like, it's a kid's cartoon. Don't... Stop it. Stop. 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 And that's one, one of the issues with, with you know, discourse and whatever is that, you know, you have all these adults that are into these properties that are technically for kids and they bring with it adult questions and adult concerns that actual kids don't give a shit about. They just take it at face value. I mean, I, I, I think it was always a bad idea anyway, even though I, I did enjoy the final product, but I am astonished at how you know, Disney spent the last two years like tripping over themselves trying to explain what Lightyear was. And kids didn't care if they were going to go because, oh, it's an outer space adventure starring Buzz Lightyear. Neat. But it was adults that were like, I don't understand this. This is confusing. You know, what does this mean? Nobody. No, kids don't care. Kids, don't, kids didn't think the Polar Express looked scary. They thought it was cool. You know, that was adults that were like, ooh, the scary eyes. I'm scared. Kids didn't care. It wasn't for you. No. And, you know, if I may, you know, if I may be blunt, yeah. there's going to be a lot of chatter in the next four months about how Black Panther Wakanda Forever is or isn't dealing with the Chadwick Boseman factor. And I guarantee you, most kids will take it at face value. It's the adults that are going to, like, pretend that there's a right or wrong way to do it. And is this respectful? Is this not respectful? And, you know, should they have recast? Should they not have recast? And complicated conversation. I'm a white guy, so the only thing I bring to the table is that absent the baggage, it would have been no different than when Val Kilmer replaced Michael Keaton in Batman Forever. But I am aware of the baggage. I'm not an idiot. But that being said, the core audience for these pictures, and by that I mean children and general audiences who are adults, are not going to care as long as the movie is good. If they are obsessing about that, it's because the movie isn't working and giving them time to obsess about that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Daredevil, and this, so they're going to go back to the Daredevil again. They have eighteen, a new 18-episode season coming out, Born Again, and they're bringing back Charlie. So he's getting a lot of work, Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio, and that's set to drop on Netflix. Uh, I guess the question is, can you, when are people going to, or are people going to get tired of what they call superhero fatigue, whether it's in streaming or, or... Well, I don't think the shows are helping. And again, I, I think to a certain extent, the shows exist because Disney Plus needs content, right. obviously. I think they're going to exist 
ever more because they've realized over the last two years that nobody watches anything on Disney Plus except for the Star Wars and the uh, Marvel shows. You know, other than that, it's mostly a babysitting service. And that would be fine if it wasn't being held up as the new center of their universe. I mean, Peacock may not get the best ratings in the world, but I think to their credit, Comcast made a point not to position Peacock as the center of the Comcast empire. It's just another thing that can make them money. And I think by staying under the radar, I think they will be fine in the long run. Um, Paramount's a little more complicated. HBO Max is a little more complicated. Um, I do think when you look at the movie schedule for Marvel, it's not like Phase Five and Phase or Phase Five has that many more movies than Phase Three did, or that Phase Four has that many more movies than Phase uh, Three did. And part of that is because you know they weren't expecting to get Spider Man, so that's three movies that were not necessarily in the initial plan. Um, but I think the extent that it feels like there's all Marvel all the time is because of the TV shows. And if you are a general audience member, a consumer, you can choose what to watch or not watch. If you're a comic book fan, you don't walk into a comic book store and buy every single issue of every single book. You pick and choose what you want to read. And... If you're a general consumer, I imagine that's how you approach the Marvel stuff, especially the TV shows. The problem is, if you're in the media, you kind of have to watch all this stuff as soon as it gets avail is available, and you have to have some kind of hot take and or nuanced opinion about it. So in that sense, yeah, it's draining because you, it's always in your face all the time. And you know, when, when people talk about you know superheroes and you know taking over Hollywood, they didn't take over Hollywood; they took over Hollywood marketing. They took over the media. Yes. So that, you know, even if there's only, you know, four or five superhero movies in a given year, you're reading about them or having to write about them, comment on them, and have opinions about them all year round. And that is annoying. And it breeds resentment to a certain extent. Um, but if you're just somebody that, you know, just a general audience member that, likes Marvel movies and you show up to the Marvel movies because you like them. So you saw Doctor Strange in a theater and then maybe you watched Loki because you like Loki. You might not watch Moon Knight. You might not watch Miss Marvel. I mean, Miss Marvel is a show aimed at children. And that's not a criticism. That is what it is. And I think there is an unfortunate, you know, I, I was not happy about the, you know, online discourse implying that people that weren't watching Miss Marvel, a show intended for children, weren't doing so because of, you know, ethnic prejudice. You know, again, I love the Babysitter's Club, but I don't expect adults to watch the Babysitter's Club. You know, if you have kids that watch it, great. If you choose to watch it for yourself for whatever reason, awesome. But it's not intended for you. Now, the issue, with the, the scary thing with Miss Marvel, which was pretty good, by the way, um, is that that was a Marvel show that pulled ratings closer to a, just a regular Disney Plus kid show. And that's scary for them. You know, is this going to be a situation where Marvel shows that aren't either A, direct sequels to Avengers Endgame, which most of them have been so far, or relatively disconnected with a huge movie star like Oscar Isaac in the lead role, are those, gonna, those shows going to pull ratings closer to you know, big shot about high school musical, the yeah. musical, the series, than Loki or Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. And if that's the case, then there is trouble on the horizon. 
because Disney, and when I say Disney, I mean Bob Chapek and basically Bob Chapek alone, all due respect, you know, put all of the eggs in the Disney Plus basket and is basically kneecapping their own theatrical division for, you know, they're, they're the only studio that hasn't fully recovered. Um, and they're doing great with Marvel, but now Marvel's all they got. And not I read your piece the other day. Yeah, and I've been I've been I've been tooting that horn for two or three years just because I mean I'm not Nostradamus. It's just I I I pay attention <laughs> in a way that I think a lot of people don't either because they don't want to because they don't want to lose access or they don't just don't want to be negative or they just they don't interact with. And again, I don't want to be in my approach get off this train of thought. Yeah, I mean. Um, but no, I mean, it's just, I, 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 I do my best to, to, to see how the real world is responding to this stuff. And the example I always give is that Star Trek Into Darkness, 2013, comes out, gets good reviews, an A cinema score, does good, but maybe not superlative box office compared to Star Trek. The hardcore Star Trek fans, rightly or wrongly, hate it. And they basically vote on it as the worst Star Trek movie of all time. So now, even though the film got good reviews, an A from Cinema Score, decent box office, there is a perception that it is a terrible film and a bad Star Trek film. Whatever. But here's the thing. If you ask mom-and-pop moviegoer or, you know, general moviegoers, they saw Star Trek in the Darkness on opening weekend, or maybe in the first 10 days or whatever. They thought it was fine. Maybe they didn't love it, but they thought it was fine. It was a big, splashy sci-fi effects-driven action-adventure picture with charismatic movie stars playing marquee characters that they knew and liked. They liked it. Maybe they saw it twice. Maybe they saw it again when it was on Blu-ray. Otherwise, they went on with their lives. Yeah. And that's the way regular people digest this stuff. You know, they don't spend four years arguing about The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker. I mean, you you have your, your, your regular moviegoer that will just go watch a film and take a film in and then have an opinion on it. And then you have those people that are hard, hardcore, those people that are comic book fanatics, and then those people that, so they have to see, you know, X character translate to Y on screen. And then you have, you know, and that's a very small uh, group of the population. And then you have the people in the media that have to watch all of this and be able to funnel all of this in. Take this in, be able to put it back out, and unfortunately, if you, you're writing your opinion, and it, whether you thought it was good, bad, or indifferent, and you're always going to get people out there that say, you know what, I didn't like this because you didn't like it, or for whatever reason, and it's like, come on, it's a movie. And, and people, yeah, I mean, I, I think people just take things too seriously. I think there is a contingent of fans in every fandom, almost every fandom, that treat it like a borderline cult. That is a simplification and extreme, intentionally so. They treat it as a part of their personality. So when you say this latest Marvel movie is bad, or, you know, this latest, you know, I'm, you know, I didn't like Man of Steel. You, people act like you're insulting their children. And while these people are minority, they are loud. And the SEO-driven media takes them to the top of the, the, the what gets talked about when you talk about these projects. 
And Disney made the or Lucasfilm, I don't lose the blame, made the terrible mistake of listing these people at The Last Jedi and retrofitting the rise of Skywalker to appease what turned out to be a very small and demographically irrelevant fan base. Yeah. And they rightfully got dinged for it. And I think Marvel, to their credit, has been pretty good about ignoring that stuff. I mean, they didn't, you know, when, when Age of Ultron only made $1.4 billion and only got solid reviews. And that's when you started seeing the whole super fatigue narrative, by the way. Because a film that opened to $191 million on opening weekend and eventually earned $1.4 billion and made more overseas than the first Avengers picture. Yeah. yeah. The general audiences thought it was good. But a year later, Captain America Civil War comes out. It's a more grounded picture. It's a more disciplined picture. It, you know, it gives people what they want. But the general audiences thought it was just as good as Age of Ultron. Not any better, not any worse. It's like, oh, I like that one. I like this one too. There's no huge extreme and difference of opinion. And my own personal opinions on Star Wars notwithstanding, I imagine most people liked or really liked The Last Jedi. And then two years later, they walked into The Rise of Skywalker. And I don't know how many people really liked The Rise of Skywalker, but I imagine most of them liked it or were fine with it, whatever. Again, they, they see it once, they move on with their lives. Uh, and part of that is, you know, us in the media, we can't always afford to move on with our lives because yeah. we have to keep talking about this stuff because that's what people want to hear about. And by people, I mean those who are perpetually online who click on those articles and share that stuff on Twitter. And then, of course, in early 2020, the world shut down. So we had to keep having these same discourses about the same movies because there was nothing new to argue about. Yeah. You know, we can't move on from the rise of Skywalker because Wonder Woman 84 never came out. No, I know. Or, you know, Black Widow never came out or it never came out. Speaking of fans, though, I mean, so I just had just read a piece, uh, I think it was in The Hollywood Reporter, like last week or the week after, about what the whole Justice League debacle. Oh, and the Rolling Stone broke that story. Yes. And so, you know, it's just, you want to talk about fans actually, you know, pushing this and, and doing, you know, saying things and whatever. You wonder if that whole conversation had been started if we don't get the, the Snyder Cut. It wouldn't have been. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, that's a really complicated thing. First of all, I, I don't think 13% of it being bots versus usual 5 to 8% is in itself evidence of a grand conspiracy. I think it obviously didn't, you know, it helped in terms of pushing that narrative, but I don't think it made the difference. Now, we have to remember in, in, in early 2020, you know, there has been a large contingent of fans or bots or whatever they are that have been pushing for, they want a Snyder Cut of Justice um, HBO Max is about to launch. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There's no new stuff being finished. Post-production houses are closing because there's nothing to work on. Jason Killer has basically put all of his eggs into the HBO Max basket. Under those specific circumstances, it makes sense to throw a Hail Mary and give in to that fan base, spend maybe a little more than they intended to, but whatever, it's not my money, and get a year's worth of just free nonstop media attention that constantly puts HBO Max in the conversation. Um... And if by some fluke the fandom is real and lots of people watch it, great, wonderful. But if not, well, they got more off that than, you know, any number of prestige television shows that got canceled after two seasons that nobody watched. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's easy to say, ha-ha, they all got fooled by bots. But I don't, you know, I, I do not think that the bots were a deciding factor on them giving yeah. it the green light. I think it was a very specific set of circumstances that hopefully will never happen again. Um, I mean, maybe if, you know, God forbid monkey box turns into a thing, we'll get... We'll get Jack Sexton and Justin too. Yeah. Maybe bring he, maybe bring uh, Henry Cavill back. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing is that it had been so long since the first just the Justice League movie that what people what media people claimed they wanted from their blockbuster entertainment had changed a little bit. So you had people that were in the front of the line with fire you know, torches and, and pitchforks saying, you know, Snyder has to go. Batman and Superman is terrible. What the hell are they doing? Then five years later, like, Jack Snyder's Justice League is beautiful. This is what we need instead of Marvel. It's like, I read your earlier stuff five years ago. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think there's a certain cultural amnesia that brought that back to the, the front of the, the conversation, yeah. which really sucks for Warner Brothers, by the way. Regardless of which, you know, Justice League, I like it or whatever. I think the Snyder Cut is better, but I think the Whedon Cut or the producer's cut, let's be honest, it wasn't like it was his, his personal vision or anything. You know, I think that film is a fine three-star picture in a world where superhero movies do not dominate the pop culture. You know, I think in a normal world where it's just a movie, it's a three-star Super Friends film. It's fine, whatever. Um, but before COVID, they were, Warner Bros. was on a roll. They had Aquaman, they had Shazam, they had Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman 2 was going to be a huge hit. The Batman was going to be a big hit. Um, Suicide Squad was always oh, probably already been a bomb, but you do that one for the love of the game and say, hey, look, we've got James Gunn. Um, and if Peacemaker really was as popular as they say it was, who knows, then that might be, you know, a worthwhile loss on their end. You, know, you spent $180 million on an R-rated Suicide Squad that bombed at the box office, and it was always going to bomb, all due respect, you don't have Joe, you don't have Will Smith, you don't have the Joker, you don't have Batman this time. Um... But if Peacemaker puts HBO Max in the map, well. Yeah. So let me, getting back, I won't say golden age movies. What were some of the movies that, you know, that you went to see growing up that you said, I want to actually become a filmmaker or write about films? Uh, well, Tim Burton's Batman was sort of the one that turned me into a box office junkie. Uh, I was nine years old and I was just, and then, you know, a couple years later, I got a, a subscription to Entertainment Weekly. Uh, it was early 1991, so it was about a year after the publication. And you had the weekly top 10, and you had, you know, articles about box office, and I started studying it. Um, I would go down to, to, you know, I would try to find a USA Today on Monday morning that would have the top five or the top 10 box office, you know, listings. Uh, a little bit later in life, closer to the mid to late 90s, you know, headline news would have the top three movies, you know, on late Sunday night. Um, and then eventually, as the internet became a thing, Showbiz Data became a site that had daily box office numbers. So I could find out what the movie was on Friday. And that's where you first started seeing the idea of you know, weekend multipliers and stuff. Because you know it's great if this film did $60 million in the weekend, but if it did 30 on Friday, that kind of sucks. And that's a problem. Um, and, but as far as movies, I mean, you know, Batman, um, I, my favorite films growing up, Sons of the Lambs, Rabbit, Batman, Field of Dreams, Raiders, um, Empire. Um, that gets me into, I mean, I mean, just 89, you had Glory, Do the Right Thing, Lonesome Dove, Field of Dreams, Batman, 
Lethal Weapon 2, Baron Hood, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that was um, great. I mean, you know, people like to talk about that correctly as sort of the first modern blockbuster summer, but it was a great freaking year for movies, period. Um, yes, I know a lot of loads of doves and miniseries. Yeah. That and um, 1994. Um, 94, yeah. That's, I mean, Jesus, you've got stuff on yeah. my head. Yeah. That's actually one of the posters. So I, I don't know if you can see it, but that's actually one of the oh, yeah. posters I have over there. It's Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, that was so. I, I'm obsessed with that movie. Um, last, it's it always amazes me, like the stories behind it. And so I'm sure you know this, or maybe you don't. But Gene Hackman actually bought the rights to Silence of the Lambs, the Thomas Harris book, and he bought it for five hundred thousand dollars. And when he read it, and he said, "Well, I yeah. can't make this. This is too violent," because he was going to play Lecter, and he was going to direct it. And so he bought it, he went back and sold it back to Orion. And so at that point, um, they had had Jodie Foster already pegged for um, that movie because a couple of years oh, earlier, yes. she had just won for The Accused in 1988. And so, correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, by the way. <laughs> and so Jonathan Demme, who had actually just come off doing um, Philadelphia, Married the with Mob. With Tom Hanks. Oh, no, no, Married to the Mob. Oh, okay. Married to the Mob. Thank you. So he then finds out about this somebody overseas named, named Anthony Hopkins. And so he goes over and he actually, you know, he talks to him and says, so he presents it with the script and Anthony Hopkins actually thought it was a children's book. And he turned it down a couple of times. And so finally... He said, okay, so once he found out who else was on board, and then they actually never rehearsed. One of the first scenes they shot is when Starlin's walking down to talk to Lecter for the first time. And so, you know, it's the famous scene where he says, I'll help you catch him, Clarice. Yeah. And so at that point, he knew he had a hit on his hands. But I love that movie. Yeah, it's a very... I saw that at a drive-in... With my mother, and the, that was the back half. That was the second movie. The first movie was uh, Dances with Wolves. <laughs> that was a long night. Yeah, it was a long night, but it was great. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love. You saw two best I, picture winners it, back to back. Yeah, and it always amazes me of all of the movies that have won. I mean, Silence is the last. Silence and Lambs is the last one to win the Big Five in '92. And it's always amazed me of all of the movies that have gotten 13, 14, I think La La Land got like 16 nominations across American Hustle got 10. They were all nominated, Silence or Civil Lightning's Playbook gets nominated across the board. Not one movie in all of those years has ever won the big five since. Yeah. And the last film to do it prior to that was the year I was born, 1975, with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. And before that, it happened one night, 1934. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to happen for another 10 or 15 years. I mean, it's going to have to be a special, special movie. Do you think it's ever going to happen again, Scott? Here's the thing. I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, I don't know. But I think it's a rare picture in which, for one thing, I mean, Anthony Hopkins was committing category fraud by being the best actor, all due respect. Um, <laughs> so you have a film with an unusually dynamic then and now female protagonist you have a respected director you have you know 
blowout box office then and now. And then you have this wild card of a character who, again, should all right should be in the best actor category, but he runs for best actor. You can get it on sheer momentum, and he does. If I were Nick Nolte, I'd still be pissed. Um, can you imagine how pissed Nick Nolte is in general? Because he, the two most likely times he was going to win an Oscar, he lost to Anthony Hopkins, who was on screen for like 27 minutes. He lost to Ramini in basically a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> All due respect. I was just full. I mean, it's like you can imagine, you know, when he's hopping up and giving a speech, everyone in the audience is like, oh, I'm not really <laughs> No, it's just, it, you know, it's I was actually just watching something uh, today. Amy Adams has gotten nominated for like seven Academy Awards. And that woman has never, ever won an Oscar, whether it's from a rival or American well, Hustle. Or it, I'm just playing. The continuity of Arrival at face value, she may still win an Oscar for Arrival. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, I love her as an actress. I love her. She's an amazing actress, and she she's oh yeah, she's great. Well, that she wasn't even nominated for Arrival. Yeah. Is absurd. But I think I. I mean, it's it's her movie. Yeah. It's a star. I mean, movie. she's probably the best actress out there today, not to have an Oscar. I mean, I hope at some point they don't just give her a sympathy Oscar. You know, okay, you've been nominated seven times. Here you yeah. go. You know, I hope she wins one because... Susan Sarandon for Dead Man Walking is a rare case of someone who lost a bunch of them won for... Actually won yeah. for the right role for Dead Man Walking, which would have deserved to win even if she yeah. had won six times. Um and that's yeah. always nice when that happens, when it's not, you know, a makeup Oscar, yeah. a sympathy Oscar. Um, so we talked about some of the movies. Who were some of your favorite directors growing up? Uh, Tim Burton, like a lot of people in my generation. He was he was basically film school in a box. Because, you know, if you're a kid, you know, even if you're not reading movie magazine or anything, like, he, has, he had such a distinct style and in terms of cinematography, in terms of production design, in terms of the Danny Elfman school, in terms of the people that he, he always liked to cast. It's like, you know, auteur theory for kids, basically. It's like, it's so obvious that it's a Tim Burton movie, that even a lay person would say, oh, that's a Tim Burton movie. And this and this and this and this makes it a Tim Burton movie. Ergo, I understand film theory a little bit better. Um, but, um, so I grew up as a big Tim Burton fan. I still am. I mean, I, 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 I I will argue that he's he's remained a one for me, one for them filmmaker even over the last twenty years or so. You know, for every Alice in Wonderland, he gives us a big fish. It's just when nobody shows up to Big Eyes and only shows up to Dumbo, which I don't hate. But then he gets the reputation of oh, he's such a sellout. He's doing a lot. It's like you don't see his regular movies anymore. Uh, and also, I mean, he has you know his style, his signature has gone from being unique unto himself to basically being the template for fantasy blockbuster filmmaking to the point where, you know, one reason he's, his stuff feels old as is because Hollywood's been ripping him off for 20 years, 30 years. Um, and, but, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, I adored, and I still do, but, you know, those that first three or four or five year run is still freaking awesome. Yeah, I just saw that Signs turned 20 this last year. Um, That's hard to believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a banger of a picture. I saw that yeah. twice in the crowded theater. It was a fun movie to watch in the crowded theater. Um, obviously, I like Nolan as much as the next nerd. Um, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm starting to become a, a, a Maria Heller fan. 
I loved her first three movies, and I'm expecting her to you know to keep going, going, going. Yes, uh, it would be nice if Sarah Polly would make a movie again. I mean, she hasn't made anything since the documentary 12, 10 years ago. So let's go to something, something current. You did you see Nope? What did you What did you think of it? Yeah, yeah, I like I, yeah, I'm a Jordan Peele fan. I didn't like it as much as his first two pictures. I think it is. I think it's narratively unwieldy. I think it, it presumes facts, not in evidence, in terms of character development and, and story. I don't need everything explained. In fact, one of the things I like about us, for example, is that there are a lot of fantastical elements that are just taken at face value. I appreciate it. Um, I also think it, it, and I don't know how you get around this from a marketing perspective because you have to sell the movie. I felt that the marketing was very spoilery in terms of major images that were toward the end of the movie or key comeback images that are sort of tossed off as just something random that happened in the first act. Um, and also, it's a film like Brad Bird's Tomorrowland, like Chris Nolan's Interstellar, that was sort of sold as a mystery box, but really it's what you see is what you get. And again, that's not really the marketing of the movie's fault. And, 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 but I think as a movie, I'm probably seeing it again this week because my wife hasn't seen it yet, and she wants to. Um, I'll probably see it again this weekend, either in IMAX or if there's a Dolby around. I saw it in IMAX for the premiere, and it looked fantastic. Yeah, I did as well. But yeah, he's certainly up there in terms of modern. I love James Wan. I've become a huge James Wan fan. He's, in his own weird, skewed way, he's become a modern Spielberg. And then I think he's probably one of the best pure blockbuster filmmakers around. And you know, I loved Aquaman. I think Furious Seven is the by far the second best Fast and Furious movie behind Fast Five. And after that, it's just like a nosedive to whatever. Yeah, I stopped after Fast Five. Yeah, you know, I think Too Fast Too Furious made number three on my list. Um, but and Malignant was bundles of fun. Yeah. Uh, I love Malignant, and I'm very much looking forward to Aquaman too. Yeah. Um, and that is that is an example of a big budget superhero movie that really feels like a distinct personal vision. In that it feels like a James Wan picture. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying none of the Marvel films have that. That's one of the reasons I like Shang Chi as much as I did because it felt like a director by the guy that made Short Term Twelve in the Glass House. Um, you know, I think to a certain extent, the themes that he's dealt with over his career, you know, in the handful of movies he's made, went very well with the whole Marvel bad dance thing. So it kind of, it, it sort of matched, you know, which is why you hire him for a movie like that, because you know he can make a movie that is uniquely, you know, that feels of a pace with his other films while still playing in the Marvel sandbox. Taiki Wahidi is fine. I'm not going to stop yeah. liking his other movies because I didn't like Thor, Love, and Thunder, whatever. Even Spielberg made 1941. Yeah. Um, and of course, Spielberg's still around, you know, telling everyone to get off his lawn and... and Glorious fuck you fashion. I mean, I keep thinking he's going to retire, but then he announces another movie, and then it turned out to be fucking awesome. Well, no, I think isn't he going to uh, Toronto Film Festival? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is going to be one of the first campaigns that he's yeah. doing in in quite a few years. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, you know, every Steven Spielberg drama since after Amistad has been nominated for Best Picture. So all of his serious films have been, you know, like, so I would guarantee this gets a best picture nomination unless it's garbage, and I'm yeah. assuming it's not. And and um, and that's the other thing too. How do you in what would you consider 
garbage. I mean, it's like well, with anything, Spielberg, you know, it, there are Spielberg films that I don't like, but I think probably ninety percent of his filmography would be like the best movie you've ever made from like ninety nine percent of all working filmmakers. Yes, like you know, War of the Worlds is a three star Spielberg picture, but it would be a you, oh my god, this is awesome for most yeah. anybody else. Um, and, you know, War Horse, Bridge of Spies, yeah. The Post. I mean, he's just doing this in his sleep. Yeah. I mean, Even Ready I, Player One, which by all you know, by all rights should have been a disaster. Yeah. But he managed to, A, make a film that felt like a, you know, I'm going to teach you guys how to do this stuff again. And it felt in a, a very mournful and sober and thoughtful meditation on, you know, Spielberg and maybe Lucas to a certain extent, reflecting on the... The, the generation that grew up on the pop culture that Spielberg created and, you know, what kind of world have they made for us? And I found it very profound in that sense. No, absolutely. And, and you know, by the way, if you want to go back and listen to the Steven Spielberg podcast uh, I did, we we talk all about his films and we count down our, our personal top tens. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where, yeah, like, I love Lincoln. I don't care what most people say. I love I Lincoln. I do. Lincoln. That was just... When Daniel Day-Lewis's third Oscar, Sally Field was amazing. It, the host, I was just... And that's one of those films that is just... It's not a war film, per se, like a Saving Private Ryan, but it's a about a man who has to deal with that. And... Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, it so feels like up. you know. What if the West Wing in, during the Civil War? Yeah, which is a good pitch. And what I yeah. like about it is that you know, at its core, it's about moral compromise to achieve the greatest of all goods. And you know, it, it, it doesn't. I would argue it does not blink in terms of the moral hypocrisies at play. I mean, the very first scene has two black servicemen asking why they're not going to be the same as white servicemen and. Lincoln gives him a bullshit answer. <laughs> and at least one of those soldiers realizes he's being patronized. But, yeah, it's and, just... You know, I, I think it's much more... You know, it's not a hailography at yeah, all. He's, he's... As far as I'm concerned, he's on the Mount Everest of filmmakers for me. I mean, yeah. you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, you know, and the, the, you can throw any other two up there you want, but those two, you know... I mean, Lucas... The thing about Lucas is... Yeah, Star Wars. It, but I wish he, he'd work more. Yeah, no, and that's the thing. Like he says, and he, he's come out and said he hates directing. He hated directing Phantom Menace, so he would rather have somebody else do it. But you know, I mean, so you could pick any other two there you wanted. But yeah, it's one of those things where we are blessed as far as film or as film fans and in the media. It's just another cycle. As far as you know, horror filmmakers go, I like Lee Winnell. I think is really upgrading with every film he makes. Um, I like Juan. I like Peel. Uh, as far as blockbustery action filmmakers, obviously Juan again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the one for me is David O. Russell. Oh yeah. I just you know, I think he is just Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle. Joy, he can. I think he's one of the few filmmakers that still commands the capital to make those kind of movies, which is why he gets the cast that he does, which then the cycle continues. Um, And, you know, he may be a schmuck in real life. 
I wouldn't vote but, no. But the thing is that he is able to, and that's why his films are so good, is the simple fact that he works with the same people. And they know, once you work with them, they know what, yeah. you know, all you got to do is take the Silver Linings playbook and the fighter and you got American Hustle. And so once they knew, you know, once they understand what they want, you know, but, um, yeah, it, it's just Hollywood is one. So one final question for you. What do you think is the biggest change in the last 20 years since you've been, or a couple of the biggest changes that you have noticed personally since you started covering Hollywood? I think for me, the biggest change, and this sort of explains everything else that's annoying us, there is a smaller portion of people that go to the movies just to go, this is even before COVID, that go to the movies just to go to the movies. And that's the audience that used to count on to see just a studio programmer, as well as the big blockbuster films. So once you lost that audience to streaming or TV or social media or whatever, you had an ecosystem where people didn't go to the movies unless there's something they specifically want to see at a theater soon because you know they're, they're slowly realizing that they can see it on VOD or streaming in a month yeah. and a half or whatever. Yeah. That's not good, but whatever, it seems to be working. So as a result, you have, you know, starting in 2017, 2018, whatever, you had Hollywood kind of starting to make the kind of movies that we all said we wanted in terms of star projects, inclusivity, diversity, adult skewing, whatever, and nobody showed up. Uh, I think what we've seen, and this goes in terms of ticket sales, in terms of overall box office, overall, and this is before COVID, obviously, the overall box office, up, 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 up. Some of that's due to rising ticket prices. Some of that's due to more people spending money at premium auditoriums like IMAX or Dolby. Um, more people that are going to the movies are going to somewhat premium theaters like Diamond Theaters, which is great for the theaters because they make their money off food anyway. Um, Ticket sales are down continuously, but they're not catastrophically down. I mean, and I was surprised when I did this research in early 2019, when I was comparing 2018, where ticket sales were down, but they were basically about like, there's like a hundred million, yeah. and that seems like a lot, but when you're dealing with billions, you know, there's like a, no, no, like a million, 1.2 to one point, yeah, it's hundred million, right? Yeah, uh, like a hundred million tickets less sold between like 2018 and 1993. So over like a 20 year period, 25 year period, give or take, whatever. Yeah, 20, uh, that you know, it's it's there hasn't been that much of a change, even with DVD, video on demand, YouTube, streaming, you know, every, all of these distractions that didn't exist. You know, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But the big difference, and this, in my opinion, explains everything else, the much larger majority of an, the annual domestic box office is being smet, spent on a smaller portion of annual releases. So the big, big movies are sucking up more of the overall annual expense than they were even six or seven or eight years ago. So, box office up, ticket sales well declining but not catastrophic. But the surefire tent poles, the top six, top eight, top ten movies of the year, are taking up anywhere from twenty five percent to one third of the overall ticket sales for a given year. So that leaves everything else fighting for a much smaller portion of the plot. And that, in my mind, 
is why you have this phenomenon where films that would have been solid programmers 10 years ago can now barely justify a theatrical release. Yeah, and you know, 10 years ago, Sandra Bullock's The Lost City making $100 million would have been, well, that's not bad. She's done better, but that's not bad. But now it's, you know, yeah. it's a freaking miracle. Yeah. Um, but again, Sandra Bullock is a yeah. movie star. In my opinion, she is right up there with Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. It's her and Leo, and that's it. At the top you don't of the, think the Tom Cruise is a movie star? Um, on streaming, too, because two of the biggest Netflix movies ever. Not unless he's playing a marquee character like uh, Ethan Hunt or apparently Mitchell, Maverick Mitchell. And the extent that I underestimated Tap Gun is that yeah. I did not think or did not know for sure that that character was as much of a marquee character as Ethan Hunt. Because going back 10, 15 years, there's a ceiling for its non Impossible movies, at least since War of the Worlds, which was what he was promoting in the whole Katie Holmes, Matt, Matt, sorry, the, the NBC anchor whose name is Matt um, Lauer. Anyway, you know, when that, the Scientology thing kind of came to the forefront. Matt Lauer, thank you. Um, I don't want to say the couch jump because he didn't actually jump <laughs> the couch. Um, I understand. But, and since that time, there has been a ceiling for non-Mission Impossible films, and it's been mostly under 400 million. So going into summer, you know, 2022, yeah, I did not think that a Top Gun sequel 38 years later was gonna make $1.3 billion worldwide. I don't, I don't think anybody did. Um, but that doesn't mean that the next Edge of Tomorrow is gonna make 500 million, or the next Tom Cruise plays a guy doing a thing in a movie that isn't, you know, Top Gun or Mr. Impossible is going to do 400 million. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, American Made barely cracked 150. And that's the closest thing he's made to not an action movie in 15 years. Unbelievable. Um, Unbelievable. Well. So, no, in my opinion, Sandra Bullock, Leonardo DiCaprio, and everyone else is in, you know, to varying degrees. You know, Denzel Washington, if the budget is right, as Righteous Revenger Man, he is a draw. Gerard Butler, if it's a $15 million opening, as a B-movie action star, he is a draw. Uh, there was a period, I don't think it's anymore, where Meryl Streep was a $20 million opener for a while. Um, but that was in the good times. Um, Kevin Hart was an opener before COVID. I don't know if he still is, because he, he refuses to put any of his movies in theaters. Yeah, I, I understand that sensibility. Yeah. I, I, anything that he's done with Dwayne Johnson, um, is, he seems to have done well. So, I mean, but maybe it's just... You know, Dwayne Johnson, box office name. So, I mean, they're going there to see him. They're not going to see Dwayne Johnson is a star. He's he's actually a very old fashioned movie star. By that I mean, in the right package, he is bankable. But he's not bulletproof. In the same way, that, you know, Kevin Costner starring in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was very different than Kevin Costner starring in The Perfect World. Um. Or just because the last Boy Scout made money from Bruce Willis doesn't mean the color of night was going to be a hit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dwayne Johnson, when he's he's in an IP, but the interesting thing about him is that he tends to pick IPs where he's bigger than the IP. You know, he's bigger than Rampage. He's bigger than Jumanji. He's bigger than Black Adam, I would say. Um, but if it's there's no IP or if it's a bad IP like Baywatch... <laughs> which no one wanted it. No one actually wanted a big deal, a Baywatch movie. You know, no one actually watched that sincerely. Um, and those that did watch it sincerely didn't want to see a comedy that made and fun And you got to wonder, though, why 
you get such a big name. Why would, if you're, whether you're a publicist or a manager, why would you ever, ever have your client ever do something like that? It's like, okay, fine, maybe we're waiting six months for this other movie to, to finish up. You know, the script rewrites and whatever. But Because they on. thought it'd be the next 21 Jump Street. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of the whole, just because audiences responded to this specific package, these specific ingredients, doesn't mean they're going to want something that's kind of sort of similar. It also spent, you know, $65 million on the film, which means it had to do 21 Jump Street numbers just to break even. I mean, it didn't, I mean, people showed up. It did like 150, 170 worldwide, but on a 70 budget, and that wasn't enough. If they had spent 40 on it, it would have been a different story. All right. Well... This has been an absolute pleasure and a blast, and I could talk to you for hours. Pleasure is at least half mine. I just want to thank you for coming on again. You're very welcome. Um, and you're welcome here anytime you'd like. Um, so for all of those that are listening, let me, let me just plug a couple of shameless things here. Coming up uh, next week, we actually have Mob Mondays coming, starting, which we will, um, I'll be talking all about mob movies just start I'm going to be start kicking it off with the 2006 Best Picture winner The Departed and Goodfellas unfortunately we just lost uh, a legend the other day in Paul Servino uh, he passed away at 83 but so we're going to be doing um, Goodfellas the week after that we're going to be doing Black Mass and I believe the week after that is Scarface the 1983 De Palma movie so um, this Friday we have Flashback Fridays and this is going to be uh, Doctor Strange, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, I believe we are in Phase 3 right now, and this is that was in 2016. So stay tuned for that. Um, and then uh, at the end of the month, we're going to be starting, Lisa and I are going to be starting this new, um, this new Game of Thrones um, series. House of Dragons. I'm going to be doing spoiler cast for each and every episode. That's going to run 10 weeks all the way through the end of October. And then we are going to be doing Rewatch Wednesdays, where I sit down and watch a movie I haven't seen, which she has, and then we're going to do it vice versa. So that's going to be a blast. And then, you know, we don't, we have, so both of those are going to be uh, paywalls. Those are going to be $6.99 each for... Mob Mondays and Rewatch Wednesdays when that comes along. Uh, don't forget, you still have the main topic podcast, just like this one, completely free of charge. You're going to have the Roundup coming up this weekend. And, um, yeah, don't forget, our Patreon is, is live right now, guys. Go to patreon.com. We have four affordable levels, $3, $7, $15, and only $20 a month. Or if you want, you can shoot us, shoot me a uh, tweet on Twitter at wannabe rounder. I will then put your name on the list for a shout out. Uh, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate us. Tell us what you think. Um, I'd like to hear your feedback. And you can also follow me on Instagram at dcaduto. Um, and that's about it. So before we go, Scott. Just tell the listeners one more time where they can hit you up or follow your work. Yes, um, I'm at Forbes.com, the ticket booth, and it's the unofficial name of my 
my quote unquote blog, but just Google Scott Mendelson, the ticket booth. I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. And uh, that's, I mean, I have a Facebook page that's mostly for kid photos and cat photos. Um, yeah, in terms of being obnoxious online, I'm mostly at, uh, on Twitter. If you are listening, tell your friends about us. This is These are the kind of interviews we like to bring you uh, on a regular basis. Actually, on Friday, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, this is going to be a personal interview. Chad Holloway is a 2013 World Series of Poker bracelet winner. So he's going to be, uh, he's going to be on the show. Uh, I actually have a, that's one of my favorite movies up there was Rounders. So, all right. Uh, but until next time, uh, once again, thank you very much for coming on. You're very had welcome. an absolute blast. So for David Steele and Mr. Scott Mendelson, this has been Real Talks. <laughs>